The story is told of two brothers from a small town who were rather well-to-do. Unfortunately, they were notoriously dishonest. As they were getting along in years, these brothers, which happened to be twin brothers, one of the brothers died and they were very close. So the surviving brother went to a priest and offered him a rather impressive sum of money if he would do not only his brother's funeral, but in the funeral refer to his brother as a saint. After a moment of contemplation, the priest agreed. At the funeral, when it was time for the man's eulogy, the priest got up there and said, This man has been dishonest all of his life. He's never loved God. He's been an idolater. He's filled with lust, greed, and pride. He was a thief and a liar, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> I don't stand in pulpits just to tell jokes. There's always a point. I'm glad we can laugh this morning. I've already cried. There's something about taking communion that is so overwhelming. That was the height of our service this morning. To think that, to think that he died for our sins and took our place on that cross is absolutely overwhelming to me. This morning I'm beginning a series on the Catholic Chronicles, part one. This morning I want to talk about salvation according to Rome. It's very important to all of us at the outset of this sermon for me to tell you that I was raised a Catholic. I have family and I have friends that are Catholic to this day. My motive is love of the truth. I want to see my family and my friends in heaven. I am not a Catholic basher. I love Catholic people. It's Roman Catholicism and its doctrine that I want to examine this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you again for all that you have done for us, all that you are doing for us currently, and all the promises of God are yea and amen. Father, I ask you again this morning, to descend upon our hearts and minds in power and in glory and give us wisdom and discernment and love for all those who name the name of Christ that we might be better Christians, more well-informed, more biblical. I pray that we would think and act biblically and I just pray for your blessing on this sermon this morning and my, on my precious hearers for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I am not a Catholic basher. It is Rome that condemns as heretics all who take issue with the canons and decrees found in their councils. I have heard these things all my life, but I never believed it until I studied it myself. This came about in my life when I went to India not long ago, and God gave me an acute awareness of precisely what idolatry really is. And then when I came back to the United States, I 
was fortunate enough to watch a videotape by a gentleman by the name of Dave Hunt. And what he had to say in that tape shocked me. So I went out myself and I got the official documents. These are sanctioned by the Vatican in Rome. You can buy these in any Catholic bookstore. This is the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent and the official catechism of the Catholic Church. I wouldn't have believed it had I not found it myself. It is the position of Protestants that God's word, the Bible, is the final authority on matters of faith and morals. The Catholic Church maintains that its canons and decrees have equal authority and, in fact, greater authority than the Word of God, the Bible. A poll conducted by Christianity Today revealed that four-fifths of all Catholic priests reject the Bible as the first place to turn in deciding religious questions. Rather, they test their religious beliefs by what the Church says, claiming that the Pope is infallible. To the religious leaders of his day, the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 7 said, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. The most important question that any man can ask is found in the book of Acts chapter 16 verse 30, where we read, and after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The Roman Catholic answer to this question is the subject of my sermon this morning. The official position of the Roman Catholic Church has never changed, despite any rhetoric to the contrary. Salvation, first of all, is exclusive to Roman Catholics. And I quote, In the 12th century, the Fourth Lateran Council affirmed, quote, There is only one universal church of the faithful, outside which no one will be saved. This was reaffirmed by Pope Pius IX in 1854 when he declared, quote, It is to be held as a matter of faith that no one can be saved outside the apostolic Roman Catholic Church. It is the only ark of salvation, and anyone that does not enter it must sink in the flood. Close quote. The Council of Trent and Vatican II more recently pronounced more than 100 anathemas and curses to anyone who believes that they are saved by Christ alone apart from the Roman Catholic Church. Prior to 1965, which was when Vatican II was established, it was a mortal sin to attend a Protestant church, read a Protestant Bible, or eat a fish if it happened to be on Friday. It is to this day a mortal sin to miss Mass every week unless you have a very good reason. My question this morning, first of all, is does the Bible make a distinction between mortal and venial sin? Those, are, those which are much more serious and those which only have temporal consequences? In the book of James, verse two, chapter 2, verse 10, pardon me, the Word of God says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. 
My question this morning is what exactly constitutes salvation according to Rome? Number one, baptism. I quote, baptism is essential to salvation. When I think of the thief on the cross, there were two thieves on each side, of, one thief on each side of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross that day. And the one thief who acknowledged the deity of Christ and said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is highly doubtful that this man ever spent a day in the synagogue, had ever been baptized, had ever done any of the rest of the things that we associate with being religious. And on his simple confession of his own sin, by admitting that we are getting what we deserve, Jesus Christ said to that man, this day you shall be with me in paradise. In fact, one of my closest friends, who died a few years ago, who was literally the most immoral person I've ever known, when I went to his funeral, the Catholic priest assured everybody in the congregation that Brother Rick would be saved because he was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church. Number two, confession to a priest, which, we, which began in 1215. From Article 1495 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I quote, Only priests who have received the faculty of absolving from the authority of the church can forgive sins in the name of Christ. Only a Catholic priest can forgive sins. How would you feel if I got up here this morning and I said, only I and those that I appoint have authority on earth to forgive sin. In Mark 2, Jesus said to the, para, to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes said, He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus did not disagree with their assertion but instead questioned the scribes and said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk? And he healed the man with a word, and the man picked up his pallet and walked away. When Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis asked him, now that he'd come to power, are you going to kill us? Joseph asked, am I God? The implication is quite obvious. It is only God who has the authority to forgive sin, since it is God and God alone that we have sinned against. After David murdered a man and he was found out by the prophet Nathan, David said in the Psalms to God, Against thee and thee alone have I sinned. So first we have to be baptized according to Rome, and then we must confess our sins to a priest, and you must confess every single sin. If you forget to confess any sin, those sins will be retained. Baptism, confession, now we come to penance. Item number 1496 in the Catholic Catechism states categorically, and I quote, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing more to make amends for his sins. He must make satisfaction for sins by doing penance. The word penance is nowhere found in the Bible. 
Martin Luther was shocked when he read the Greek New Testament to discover Jesus never said do penance. As was translated in the Catholic Bible, Jesus literally said repent. Penance is an outward act imposed by a priest, such as saying ten Hail Marys, which is what they told me to do when I went to my first confessional. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, said in Matthew chapter 6, when the apostles asked Jesus how to pray, the Lord said, When you pray, do not use meaningless repetitions as the heathen do. The difference between penance and, and repentance is as far apart as east is from west. Repentance is a condition of the heart. It is the condition of contrition. It is a brokenness over our sin and a desire to turn from it. In Joel 2.13, God said, Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. In Isaiah 1.13, God said, Worthless offerings are an abomination to me. Return to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel, the prophet said, It is better to obey than to sacrifice. The Catholic Catechism states, and I quote, The priest gives penance to help me make up for the temporal punishment I must suffer for my venial sins and to try to gain indulgences. Indulgences. That's more prayers, good works, and financial contributions made to the church, and I'm quoting, in order to shorten my time in purgatory. Purgatory. First we're baptized, then we need to confess our sins to a priest, then we must do penance, now there's purgatory. That is where Catholics go to have their sins purified by fire. It can take hundreds or even thousands of years in purgatory to prepare you for heaven. Now after you've done all that, now the way that you are redeemed is you need to take the I'm quoting, you need to take the merit from the treasury of the communion of the saints to secure your salvation. This is a treasure chest that is full of all the good works of Jesus Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the saints through the centuries, and their good works are credited to your account through prayers and financial contributions to the Mother Church of Rome. Item number 1032 of the Catholic Catechism states, The Church commends almsgiving on behalf of the dead. One Catholic theologian that I read assured us that the sooner that the money is given to the, to the date of the funeral, the more effectual the indulgence is for shortening the time of the dead in purgatory. Psalm 49.7 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give God a ransom for him. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Furthermore, there are over 100 anathemas in this book. There are almost a thousand, there are 300 pages in this book, almost a thousand in the Catholic Catechism of the Church. And if you don't agree with every single one of its doctrines and its precepts and its canons and decrees, you are pronounced by the Catholic Church anathema, which means they have the authority to curse your soul to hell forever. That is exactly what it says in their books. If you don't agree with the canons and the, cre and the decrees of the Council of Trent, 278 pages worth, for justification alone, which is salvation, there are 31 separate canons. And if you don't agree with every jot and every tittle, you are anathema. And that is by the authority of the Pope speaking ex cathedra or infallibly. Dr. C.D. Cole says, and I quote, Romanism is a complicated system of salvation by works. It offers salvation on the installment plan, then sees to it that the poor sinner is always behind in his payments, so that when he dies there is a large unpaid balance, and he must continue his payments by suffering in purgatory or until the debt is paid by the prayers alms and sufferings of his living relatives and friends. The whole system and plan calls for merit and money from cradle to grave and even beyond. Surely the wisdom that drew such a plan of salvation is not from above. In Matthew chapter 23 verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the religious leaders of his day said, and I quote, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Brothers and sisters, one of the things that this does for me is blesses me to rejoice in the joy of my salvation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle said, I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. The gospel is simple. When Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished, the Greek word used there literally means to end, complete, discharge a debt, and could have been literally translated, paid in full. In Hebrews chapter 10, 
It says, having offered one sacrifice for all sins for all time, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And verse 17 says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's good news, brothers and sisters. Yet according to Rome, quote, Whoever shall affirm that men are justified solely by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, let that man be accursed. Who's bashing who? Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. The apostle Paul said, But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. That's what the Holy Spirit says. If anybody, either an apostle or an angel, preaches to you a gospel, which means good news, the good news is found in Matthew 1.21, that they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the gospel. I close with this story. It's entitled A Christmas Story. Years ago, there was a very wealthy man with his devoted young son who shared a passion for art collecting. Together they traveled around the world, adding only the finest art treasures to their collection, priceless works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet, and many others adorned the walls of their family estate. The widowed elder man looked on with satisfaction as his only child became an experienced art collector. The son's trained eye and sharp business mind caused his father to beam with pride as they dealt with art collectors around the world. As winter approached, war engulfed the nation and the young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram. His beloved son was missing in action. The art collector anxiously awaited more news, fearing he would never see his son again. Within days, his fears were confirmed. The young man had died while rushing a fellow soldier to a medic. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with anguish and sadness. The joy of the season, a season that he and his son had so looked forward to, would visit his house no longer. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door awakened the depressed older man. As he opened the door, he was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hand. He introduced his, himself to the man by saying, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he was rescuing when he died. As the two began to talk, the soldier told of how the man's son had told everyone of his father's love of fine art. I'm an artist, said the soldier, and I want to give something to you. As the old man unwrapped the package, the paper gave way to reveal a portrait of the man's son. Though the world would never consider it the work of a genius, the painting featured the young man's face in striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man thanked the soldier, promising to hang the picture above the fireplace. 
True to his word, the painting went above the fireplace, pushing aside thousands of dollars worth of paintings, and then the man sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. During the days and weeks that followed, the man realized that even though his son was no longer with him, the boy's life would live on because of those he had touched. He would soon learn that his son had rescued dozens of wounded soldiers before a bullet stilled his caring heart. As the stories of his son's gallantry continued to reach him, fatherly pride and satisfaction began to ease the pain. The painting of his son soon became his most prized possession, far eclipsing any interest in the pieces for which museums around the world clamored. The following spring, the old man became ill and passed away. The art world was in anticipation. With the collector's passing and his only son dead, those paintings would be sold at auction. According to the will of the old man, all of the artworks would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day he had received his greatest gift. The day soon arrived and art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. The auction began with a painting that was not on any museum's list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. The room was silent. Who will open the bidding with $100, he asked. No one spoke. From the back of the room came the comment, Who cares about this painting? It's just a picture of the old man's son. Let's forget it and get to the good stuff. No, we have to sell this one first, replied the auctioneer. Now who will take the son? Finally, a friend of the old man spoke. Will you take $10 for the painting? That's all I have. I knew the boy, so I'd like to have it. I have $10. Will anyone go higher, called the auctioneer. After more silence, the auctioneer exclaimed, going once, going twice, gone, and the gavel fell. Cheers filled the room and someone explained, now we can get on with it and we can get on with these treasures. The auctioneer looked at the audience and announced the auction was over. Stunned, disbelief quieted the room. Someone spoke up and asked, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a picture of some old guy's son. What about all these other paintings? There are millions of dollars worth of art here. I demand that you explain what's going on. The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. Putting things into perspective, just as those art collectors discovered on that Christmas day, the message is the same. The love of a father, a father whose greatest joy came from his son who went away and gave all his life rescuing others. And because of that father's love, whoever takes the son takes it all. It's just that simple. In the beginning of this message, I said the greatest question any man can ask was found in Acts chapter 16. And the question was, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The book of 1 John says, these things I have written that you might know that you have eternal life. Whoever has the Son has the Father. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. 
Let's pray.